Well, as Nick mentioned, it's uh, always a joy to be alive on the Lord's Day and especially to gather with you and have another opportunity now to turn our attention to the Word of God. So thankful for this church and for the, uh, the high priority that we place on uh, the Word of God. Just reminded even as we sing these songs of how important it is that we um, remind ourselves of truth. So we're thankful for an opportunity to do that this morning. Uh, there's a couple of you that are new. I have not met you yet, but uh, I'd love to be able to meet you. So maybe after the service, we have an opportunity to, to chat. And uh, we're grateful that you're here. We hope that your time with us would encourage your hearts as we look to the Lord. Well, last year, the media website CNET, if you're familiar, they uh, featured a video And that video began with these words. Let's face it, we're all going to die. And it'll probably happen sooner than we'd like. But what if there was a way to escape the apocalypse? In fact, what if we could cheat death all together? Freeze ourselves in time and wake up in the future when all of our problems would have disappeared. The idea of putting humans into what's called cryosleep is not something that's new. You've seen uh, Star Wars, where they put Han Solo in some sort of carbonite, and Captain America, who was frozen on ice. But this video went on to say, how about in the real world, though? Can we stay off death through the power of cryonics. Are you familiar with cryonics? If you've never heard of that before, it's the low temperature freezing and storage of human remains, and all of that with the speculative hope that one day, somehow, with the advancement of technology and medical advancement, we'll be able to resurrect ourselves in the future. And for a quarter of a million dollars, you can make your way over to Scottsdale, Arizona, and you can enlist a company called Alcor Life Extension Foundation, and they will give you a second chance at life. True true story. And you say, well, that seems kind of crazy, and if you feel that way, you're not alone. Cryonics is regarded with skepticism in the scientific community. And it's generally viewed as kind of a pseudo type of science, even characterized by some as quackery. But that hasn't stopped thousands of people since the 1960s from moving forward with this. The first was a guy by the name of Dr. James Bedford in 1967. And his body, believe it or not, is still frozen today. Stored away, frozen And many others have not been as fortunate because as these companies have lost money and lost power and these bodies have eventually thawed out, they're no longer frozen. But as I read some of these stories, and you can go and read them yourself, they're really sad. They are, because these are people, a lot of whom um, they came down with terminal diseases, whether it's um, tumors, cancer, from both young and old, really wanting to hold on to life, cherishing life, loving life, and wanting to continue life. Some were so confident in future medical advances that they said they only want their heads to be preserved. You get a discount. It's cheaper if you just freeze your head. And just think about it. I mean, maybe one day, if you're 70 years old or or 80, sorry to offend you if that's the case, but it would be nice if you can just put your head on a younger, more vital body. They overlooked one thing. They overlooked the fact that dead bodies don't come back to life. Or, do they? Can a dead body come back to life? Well, certainly not the way that the cryo community and other sci-fi enthusiasts would suggest. But as we come back to Philippians and we close out chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is going to remind us once again how we're to think. And it's not to think like that. 
We're not to think like the world. We're not to hope in the world. We're not to put all our chips in the basket of the world, longing to have more of this world. Why? Because the world is not ultimately our home. You see, what Paul has been doing throughout this epistle, he's been telling us of this great and and glorious gospel, this gospel that is full of joy. And what he's done is he's kind of taken our head and he's, he's moved it to the past so we can see Christ, even before he came here to earth, see him in his pre-incarnate glory and see him step out of eternity into this world, taking on flesh, being obedient to the point of death, going to a cross, and then God highly exalting him and giving him the name which is above every name. And he's brought us to the present, understanding that now we, we have been saved by Christ He has justified us. He has given us his perfect righteousness through the imputation of his death. And so now we experience this, what we call sanctification, where we're living and growing and becoming more like him. And and now he's kind of moving our head from the past to the present and now to the future that this is what you've been longing for, Christian. You've been longing to be like Jesus. We just sang about it. We're waiting for that day when we will be perfect like he is. No more sin. And so we continue to stand together, firm in the faith, striving together, straining together towards that prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. We're longing for our future home. And the scriptures tell us that one day, it is true, he will transform our lowly bodies, our humble bodies to be just like his. You see, this letter has been all about helping us to have a heavenly, humble, joy-filled, Christ-minded mindset. That's what Philippians is attempting to do. And we see again here, as we look at chapter 3, another opportunity for us to adopt the right mindset. Look back at verse 19 as we think back to a couple weeks ago where Paul warned against those many who set their mind against Christ. They have their minds set on earthly things, Paul tells us. These are the enemies of the cross of Christ. These are those that Paul actually wept over. Why? Because their end is destruction. And he said their God is their appetite and they glory in their shame. And their goal is this life. They're pseudo-Christians. Not the real deal. Fakes, phonies. They have the language of Christ, but Christ is not their Lord and Master. They don't bow the knee to King Jesus. Their allegiance is to the world and the things of the world and not to Christ himself. The Puritan William Gurnall said, God is in the hypocrite's mouth, but the world is in his heart. Their conduct was not consistent with what we know to be true if we're in Christ, that we long for a celestial city, not this city here. So again, this is all about mindset. Where is your mind this morning? Paul will now take us on a dramatic turn as we looked at verses 18 and 19, and we saw the enemies of the cross, and now he's going to say, but wait, 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 we're different. Let's read that together. Look at verse 20 and 21. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Paul writes this, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by his working through which he is able to even subject all things to himself. Let's pray. Oh God, this is a powerful, precious, glorious truth in these two verses. And so we pray for your help. By the power of your spirit, would you please unpack this, unfold this for our hearts so that we'd see it and treasure it and live it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're taking notes with us this morning, here's our main idea. Philippians 3, verse 20 and 21, what do we have? Paul, he's reminding us that our heavenly citizenship, uh, as heavenly citizens, this present 
but passing world is not our home. Let me say that again. Paul reminds us that as heavenly citizens, this present but passing world is not our home. So instead, we eagerly await the return of our King, who will one day take us home and transform us into his perfect likeness. Our outline, you have the outline there in your notes, but if you're jotting these down, we'll look at just three main headings. First, in verse 20, the first section, we're going to look at heaven as our home. Our home is heaven. And then number two, our heart's desire is Christ's return. And then number three, our humble state will be renovated. Our home is heaven. Our heart's desire is Christ's return and our humble state will be renovated one day. Well, again, back in verse 19, Paul made it very clear that there are enemies of the cross of Christ, and they set their mind on earthly things. But here, Paul gives us a preview of the Christian mindset. We are not man-centered. We are not earthbound. You, as a Christian, should be thinking constantly about heaven, your home. So our home is heaven. For our citizenship, Paul says, is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now when Paul originally penned this letter, you realize that he addresses it to the Philippians. And he calls them Philippians, but he actually gives two different addresses. There's the physical address to the saints who are in Philippi, But before he mentions their physical address, he reminds them of their permanent spiritual address. You can flip back and look there at the very beginning of Philippians. He says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. So yes, we have a physical address. But primarily, we have a spiritual address. If you are in Christ, you are in the heavenly places with him. The same is true of you, isn't it? You might live in Seaside or Monterey or PG or Carmel. All those things are true, the United States, the world. But first and foremost, you are in Christ. Now, where does Christ reside? Well, he resides in heaven. And because he is there, we are, in a real sense, with him. That's what it means to be in Christ. That is where our citizenship is. And Paul presents this as a present fact. When Paul says our citizenship is in heaven, that verb is indicates that this is a present possession. We're not waiting to become citizens. We're not one day hoping to become citizens. Right now, currently, where you sit, you are a citizen of heaven. This is our current reality. Look, we're not there yet physically, but spiritually we are in Christ. And we long not just to be in Christ, but one day actually physically with Christ. Look, that's what heavenly citizens do. We wait for a heavenly Savior to return and to take us home. And this is exactly what Jesus said. He told his disciples, my father's house, there are many dwelling places If it were not so, what does Jesus say? I would have told you. But I go and I prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, Jesus says, I will come again. And I will receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And you remember the disciples that are gathered as Christ ascends into heaven and they're standing there in wonder and amazement and the angel comes and tells these men, men of Galilee, why are you standing looking toward heaven? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Now, let's just take a few moments to inspect what this means to have heavenly citizenship. Now, we've already saw this word before, this idea of citizenship. 
We saw it in the verb form back in Philippians 1.27. Take a look right back there. Philippians 1.27. And we said this is really the theme verse of the whole book. Paul writes in 1.27, only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. There's the word right there. But here now in 3.20, we have the noun form of this word. And it's the only place in the 13 letters of Paul where he uses this noun form. It's real easy if you're looking at the Greek to identify a lot of the English equivalents because the word that we see in there is that word politics. Politics. And the linguistic relatives of those words are words like police and policies and politicians and even polity because at the root of that word is the word polis, which is city. Now, why do I point that out? Two, two reasons. First, the Philippian church, you know, is in Philippi, and Philippi is actually in Macedonia. So the Philippians are a colony. They are 800 miles away from Rome, but they consider themselves to be citizens of the city of Rome. That is their home city. And despite the distance, they enjoyed all the rights and privileges of Roman citizens. They carried around, as it were, the type of ancient passport which proved their citizenship. And with that came lots of perks. You say, what kind of perks do they have? Well, they can move around freely and work. They were protected under Roman law. If they were ever accused of a crime, then they had the right to a proper trial. In fact, Paul pulls his card and says, wait a second, you're beating me and you, you think that's okay? I'm a Roman citizen. And remember, the guards were terrified. Whoa, 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 we're, we were beating a Roman citizen and their lives were in jeopardy for doing that to a Roman citizen. Another interesting fact about being a Roman citizen is that you could never be crucified. You know why? Because Romans would never ever think to put one of their own through that kind of torture and that kind of death. So the Philippians, they're, they're, they're proud Romans. We, we call them Philippians, but they would have considered themselves Romans because they dressed like Romans, they spoke the language, they lived by those laws, and they enjoyed all the pleasures and social affairs of Rome. But the second reason why I point out this word or this idea of polis is because in a general sense, we're all heavenly citizens. But specifically speaking, we are looking for a specific city. We want the holy city. We are residents of a holy city. Uh, turning your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21. As you get to the latter part of the book of Revelation, we see all these beautiful visions of what is to come. And in Revelation 21 and verse 2, we read this, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. You see, Christian, your true, your final home is a wonderful city. We're citizens of heaven, and we live for that, and we long for that home, which is our city. And since we're the people of heaven, listen, our preoccupation needs to be with heaven. Our thoughts, our affections, our desires. You can say our policies are heavenly. Our political affiliation is heavenly. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2.19. He says, you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and you are of the household of God. And Paul, he's a great model. He's a great example of what it means to be a heavenly citizen. And he puts forward, even in this epistle, he puts forward Timothy and Epaphroditus as great heavenly citizens. But there's actually a chapter in the, in the Bible that talks all about what it means to be a heavenly citizen. And I want you to turn there. It's in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Again, Paul, he's a wonderful example, but we have so many more. And starting there in verse 9, we learn about Abraham. And look what it says about Abraham. The writer of Hebrews writes this. 
By faith, he, that's Abraham, he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. Look at verse 10. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Now look what the writer says about Moses down in verse 24. It says, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Regarding the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. And why? There it is. For he was looking to the reward. Go go back to verse 13. We read there, All of these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been remembering that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they aspire to a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he prepared a city for them. You see what Christians do, we look ahead. Because there's something greater and more glorious and more enjoyable and more pleasurable ahead of us. You can be like Lot's wife and turn back, but the same thing will happen if we treasure this world, which is temporal and dying and decaying. But you ask, well, how could this be true of us? How can I be in a position, how can I be assured that God is not ashamed to be called my God? How can we have certainty of our own heavenly citizenship? Well, the answer is in Hebrews 2. Look at verse 6. Hebrews 11.6. It's faith. It always has been. It always will be. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who draws near to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And so you see, if you want to be a heavenly citizen, you must be born again. There is no other way. There is no other currency. There is no other passport. You must be born again. Turn on over to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 3, the apostle Peter writes this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again, I love this, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, having been kept in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I can't think of any more wonderful truth than this. If you are a Christian, you are a heavenly citizen. If you are a Christian, this is not your home. If you are a Christian, you have a glorious home awaiting for you. And so what Paul writes in Colossians 3 is this, therefore, look, if you've been raised up with Christ, then keep seeking the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Look, church, it is so crucial for us, for our lifestyles to be consistent with our citizenship. If if you're trying to be a citizen of a different country, you're going to have all kinds of issues. Just think about all the brothers and sisters, or even not the Christians, But you think about the Ukrainians that are right now in Russia. How do you think they feel about what Russia is doing to Ukraine? Do you think they're happy? Do you think they're celebrating? Do you think they approve of all the destruction and disaster? But what if they became comfortable where they're at? They forgot that they were actually from Ukraine. And well, we're here in Russia, and so we're going to think like Russians and act like Russians and wave the Russian flag. Do you see how that becomes an issue? And the same is true for us. This is not your home. 
So don't look like the world. Don't love the world or the things in the world because all that is in the world, the love of the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, it is not from the Father, but it is from the world. We don't want to wave the wrong flag. We don't want to fight against our own country. We don't want to value the things that we shouldn't value. Citizens of heaven focus their attention on heaven. Why? Because that's our true home. That's where we belong. That's what we're longing for. And listen, one way to know if you're a true citizen is if you're longing for the king of that country. Do you long for the king of the kingdom? If that is true of you, then it's a good indication that you're a true citizen. If you're not a citizen of the kingdom, then you have no desire for the kingdom. You, you have no longing for the king to return. But for those of us who are heavenly citizens, the Bible says here that we wait with eager longing and anticipation. And this leads us to point two. Our heart's desire is Christ's return. Look what it says there. Paul writes, we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a fantastic word. It's a, it's a very strong word. It's a rare compound word. One scholar explains that this word, it's op ek dekomai. Say what? Well, the word dekomai, the verb there, means to receive. And it speaks of welcoming someone. We just hosted um, one of Jess's friends who, who came from Sacramento. Uh, she came with her mom. She's getting ready to get married. And so I, I see what Jess does in preparation. She's vacuuming and changing out the linens and putting the coffee out and making sure everything's ready. And the kids, even there, every time they hear something, they're, they're looking out the window. Is our guest here? Are they coming? There's an eager anticipation and a preparation for someone's coming. That is what it means to receive. But it's interesting because what Paul does, he almost makes up this word. He puts two prefixes on. These prepositions, op means off, which speaks of you need to take your attention off of something so that you can fix it on something else. And it's not just that. He uses the word ek, which means out. And it's almost like you're stretching your neck out. You're, you're, you're leaning forward, looking anticipating, wanting. I remember back in 1992, this a while ago, but 92 was a big year because it was the creation of what was called the Dream Team. And I remember all my favorite basketball players were put on the same team and they go off to Barcelona for the Olympics. And I remember seeing video of these people just like waiting for the Dream Team to step off the bus. And here they come, all these big NBA players. And you see these, these pictures of these people just like looking and stretching and, oh, I want to see, I want to see. So here they come. Here comes Larry Bird. You hear the cheers and Magic Johnson. And very last, who comes last? Michael Jordan. And everybody just goes crazy because they just want to see Michael Jordan Maybe your thing's not basketball. Maybe it's the Beatles or Michael Jackson or I don't know if it's Joe Biden, but there, there, are, there are presidents and kings and queens where they would have these gigantic processions and you just, you're just longing to see and, and longing to fix your eyes on someone special. What about Jesus? Is that our attitude? Does that re reflect our heart's desire? We're just longing and stretching to have Christ come back. Are we prepared for his return? There's no doubt that Christ's return was at the forefront of the apostles' mind. How do we know that? Because seven of the eight New Testament uses of this word, it's referring to the return of the Lord Jesus. And we know from our, our study in Titus that Titus uh, Paul says to Titus that this is our blessed hope, the return of Christ. Turn with me to Romans 8. Let me just show you a few instances of this word as Paul relays them here in, in Romans 8. And starting there in verse 19, Paul says this, For the anxious longing of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. 
Look down at verse 23. And not only this, but we also, we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, we groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. And look at verse 25. But if we hope for what we do not see, what does he say? With perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Just about every New Testament letter, with the exception of those little small ones, Philemon, 2nd and 3rd John, but every letter boldly proclaims the bodily return of Jesus in power and glory. And even though we might argue about the particulars and the timeline, one thing's for sure. If you're a Christian, you know Christ is coming back. Because he promised. Just as he promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15 that he'd have a problem, or he'd have a solution for the problem of sin, so too Christ will return a second time. Not, not to deal with sin. That was already taken care of on the cross. But to glorify his saints who are eagerly longing for his return. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. I just want to show you a few more of these. That way you can circle and highlight and be encouraged. Galatians 5.5 5 says this, For we through the Spirit, by faith, are eagerly waiting for the hope of righteousness. And you say, well, don't we already have righteousness? Aren't we already justified? Yeah, but there's a righteousness that's coming that you know nothing about. It's what we hope for and long for and pray for, a day when we'll be perfectly righteous, practically righteous. Hebrews 9.28 says this, So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. And so, look, we fix our eyes, not with passive resignation, but now we're fixated on that day, engaged with hopeful anticipation. We have an intense focus. I love the way one pastor put it. He said this, Our hope is not in the coming of the Lord. Our hope is in the Lord who's coming. He said, I'm not waiting for an event to bail me out. No, I'm waiting for the person that I know and love. And because this verb is in the present tense and in the middle voice, it tells us two very important things. First of all, you know the present tense means it's an active, ongoing, continual thing. It is a prolonged focus that we must have as believers, but it's also in the middle voice. And you say, Dom, what's the middle voice tell us? Well, it tells us it's something we got to do to ourselves. You know why? Because we get so distracted. We don't do this instinctively. Our hearts, they, they wander. They're prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We often treasure what's temporal and don't keep our minds fixed on heaven. That's why when we come to the Lord's table, it's helpful, isn't it? Because we're reminded Christ is returning. Christ is returning. We're supposed to do this until he returns. Every Sunday morning, this is why we gather. This is why you shouldn't do church all the time on television. It's not the same. We need to be here, remind ourselves, sing with each other, hug each other, sit under the word of God. Those are all helpful for remembering that Christ is returning. And one of the most encouraging things, I think, is the way the Bible closes. In Revelation chapter 22, as John is coming to the end of the apocalypse, writing the last words in the book of Revelation, we get these words from Jesus himself. He says, yes, I am coming quickly. The last words of our Lord before the canon of Scripture is closed. He is coming quickly. In a sermon that Spurgeon preached about waiting for the return of Christ, he said this, listen. He writes, brethren, Jesus is coming. He is even now on the way. You have heard our tidings till you scarcely credit us, 
But the word of God is true, and it will surely be fulfilled before long. The Lord is coming indeed. He promised to come to die, and he kept his word. He now promises to come to reign, and you may be sure that he will keep his trust and his people. He is coming. Ears of faith can hear the sound of his chariot wheels. Every moment of time, every event of providence is bringing him nearer. Blessed are those servants who shall not be sleeping when he comes, nor wandering from their post of duty. Happy shall they be whom their Lord shall find faithfully watching and standing fast in that great day. Well, Paul now, he'll turn our attention to four names. They're right here in the text of who we're waiting for. Who exactly are we waiting for? Well, he uses the word Savior, which you know means uh, the Deliverer. Lord, the Ruler, the Sovereign, Jesus, Yahweh saves, Christ, Mashiach, the Anointed One, the King. And the reason why he couples all four of these words is because he wants us to feel the weightiness of who we're waiting for. But the first two titles are very interesting that he's addressing to the Philippians. The first two are Savior and Lord. You see, the, the, the citizens here of Rome, the Philippians, they would have heard those words applied often, frequently. Paul begins here with, we eagerly wait for a Savior. And in fact, the Greek construction reads this, for our citizenship is in heaven, therefore a Savior we await. And so he fronts this and I think he does that for a couple of reasons. First, he wants us to remember again that we are not waiting for an event, but we are waiting for a person. Who is that person? It is the Savior. But secondly, I think Paul fronts and stresses Savior because he wants to juxtapose Jesus and Caesar. And so I think it's almost apologetic here what Paul is doing. In 48 BC, there was a decree that went out in Ephesus which declared Julius Caesar to be the universal savior. Soter. He was the Soter of mankind. And that identification, Soter, became common for all of those that followed in his footsteps. Even the Jewish historian Josephus, he refers to the emperors Augustus and Vespasian as savior. Now, the emperors, they had all kinds of power, they had all kinds of means to help people. And so it makes sense that people would regard them as Savior. When an earthquake would happen, when a famine would happen, when an enemy would invade, they'd flex their muscles and deliver their people. But that's all they could do. What people needed to be saved from the most, those emperors had no power to save. I mean, what good is a savior if he can't save you from what we need saving from the most? You see, if there's famine, if there's an earthquake, then the emperors, kind of like our government, they could just hike up the taxes and give you some freebies. But you know what they can't save you from? You know what the government can't save you from? You know what our president can't save you from? The holy wrath of God. There, there's no stimulus for that. There's no salvation for that. We're not waiting for temporary deliverance. No, we're waiting for our full and final salvation that only comes when Christ returns. And listen, if you're a Christian here this morning, aren't you glad that you're actually waiting for a Savior? Do you know that not everyone is waiting for the Savior? There are some maybe even sitting here this morning that are waiting for the judge to come. And that's two totally different things. Listen to the words of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 7. Paul writes this, that the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his mighty angels coming in flaming fire, executing vengeance on those who do not know God, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, he says, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction 
away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day. And listen to this, and to be marveled at among all who believed. For the kingdom citizens, for those who long for the Savior to return, we are looking to marvel at Jesus. But not everyone is looking to marvel at him. There are those who have rejected him and denied him by both their actions and their thoughts. And the Bible says Jesus is not coming as their Savior, but as their judge. Revelation chapter 19, if you're sitting here this morning and you've refused to bow the knee to Jesus, you need to sober up and hear these words. Verse 12 says this, His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, having a name written on him which no one knows except himself. And being clothed with a garment dipped in blood, his name is also called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the wrath of the rage of God the Almighty. This is not a God to be trifled with. You have an opportunity to embrace him, to accept him, to bow to him, and to have him as your Savior. You don't want this Jesus to come back as your judge. So Paul says we're waiting for a Savior, but second title that he gives here is Lord, and it's equally fitting. In addition to that title, Soter, he uses the word Kyrios. And that also was exclusively for the emperor. The confession, Kyrios Kaiser, Caesar is Lord, was something that the Philippians would have been accustomed to confessing as Roman citizens. And it was all over the place. You pick up a coin, and whose image do you see? Jesus even says, whose image is that? Oh, it's, it's Caesar's. Yeah, but there's also an inscription on it that says, Curios, Lord. Along with their dependence on the emperor's generosity to save them from calamity and all sorts of other things, they also had to submit to his authority as sovereign. But listen, you can't be all that sovereign if you're still buried in the grave. And there's only one who's no longer buried. There's only one divine sovereign. There's only one who is the eternal king, the anointed king of Israel. He is the sovereign over all of human history. And it is that sovereign that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. There's only one Lord, and that is Jesus Christ. He is Lord. Christians, listen, you have an infinitely mightier and more majestic king than anything this world will ever know. So the question now is, are you waiting for him? Are you living like that? Knowing these things, the Savior, the Lord, the one who's returning, are you waiting with eager anticipation for Christ to return? You know, our friend that we had here with us, she's looking to get married. We're excited. We want her to get married. I remember being there close to 20 years ago now. But if you're saying, Jesus, don't come back yet because I want to get married first or I want to have kids first or I want to get that job first or I want to go on that vacation first. Anything that you're throwing in there first, you need to adopt this heavenly mindset. Do you understand that there is nothing on your agenda or on your calendar that you would tell Jesus, not yet. If he came back today, do you know how glorious that would be? Well, this leads to our third and final, and I think probably most glorious point. It says he's going to change our humble state. Verse 21, our humble state will be renovated. Jesus, the Savior, the Lord, the Master, Christ, the King, he will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the working through which he is able even to subject all things to himself. Just three words to focus our attention on. He will transform, he will conform, and he has the power to perform. He will transform. I love this word. It's meta 
schismato. And you can hear that word schematic in there. It's the same word when Christ took on the fashion or the schema of man when he became like us. Our current body, Paul says, is in a humble state, meaning that we have weakness and disease and death. And I don't think I have to convince any of you that that's the reality. In the past month, I've been to three funerals. I've been to the hospital. I've seen people deteriorate on life support and ultimately in a coffin, lifeless. You might think that you're young and spry and you could do backflips right now. Look at your mom, look at your dad, look at your grandparents. It doesn't last long. There is nothing more humbling than looking at a diseased body and looking at a lifeless body in a coffin. We don't want these bodies forever. We don't. I just think about all the things that are going on in our church right now from difficult pregnancies, seizures, surgeries. There's not one of us in here that hasn't experienced suffering in the last several months. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I say, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the corruptible inherit the incorruptible. You see, what we need is a dramatic upgrade And that's exactly what Jesus will provide when he comes back from heaven. He's either going to snatch you up or he's going to raise your sin-stained, suffered, scarred body and transform you into an immortal, incorruptible being. In the same way that he triumphantly emerged from the grave on the third day, the Bible says he's going to do the same thing for us. You will have a real material body that will never, ever be harmed, hurt, diseased, or die. Let me just show you this. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Glorious passage as Paul is recounting all that the resurrection will provide for the believer. And start with me there in verse 42. Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 15, 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a corruptible body. It is raised an incorruptible body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there will also be a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, he became a living soul. The last man, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthly. The second man is from heaven. And is the earthly, so also as those who are earthly, and as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. And just as we have bore the image of the earthly, we will also, listen, church, we will bear the image of the heavenly. Now I say this, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the the corruptible inherit the incorruptible. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. For this corruptible must put on the incorruptible and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this corruptible puts on the incorruptible and this mortal puts on immortality, then will come about the word that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Now the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I love that passage. No more muscle aches, no more headaches, no more heartaches, no more birth pains, no more growing pains, no more broken bones or torn tendons or arthritis, memory loss, Alzheimer's, dementia, all of that will be forgotten. Cancer will cease. 
When Christ returns and transforms our bodies, there will be no more heart attacks, no more strokes, no more seizures, no more suffering. But more than that, there's not going to be any more sin. If you woke up this morning, you came to church, and you realized, you know what? I can't wait to get to church. I want to worship the Lord. But there's something that just irks you, doesn't it? That even on the way over here, in the short hours that you've been awake, you've sinned, and you hate sin. One day, you won't do it anymore. You'll actually desire and love and long to do all the things and have the will to do all those things that God desires. So it's not just the body, but it's the body that can no longer sin. So he's going to transform our bodies, but look, it also says he's going to conform them with the resurrected body. The word he uses here is a word that he repeats over and over again, being conformed to the image of his son. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are now children of God. It has not yet been manifested as yet we will be, but we know that when he is manifested, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. You will be given brand new eyes. Jesus, at one point, he peels back and you can see the Shekinah. And what do all the disciples do? In fear, they close their eyes and hit the floor. Well, one day you'll have new glorified eyes to see him and to keep gazing upon him and to love him and to value him. You know, when I was young, I thought that when you die, you float up to heaven and Peter like hooks you up with some wings and then shoves a harp on you and then you kind of float up into a sweet little cloud and then you just do that in heaven the whole time. No wonder why I didn't think that heaven was that glorious. But listen to the way one writer puts it. As he describes the new body, he says this, in place of an earthly body that is always characterized by physical decay, indignity, and weakness, your resurrected body will be incapable of deterioration, beautiful in form and appearance, and with limitless energy and perfect health. Once he experiences a resurrection transformation, man will know perennial rejuvenation, since he will have a perfect vehicle for God's deathless spirit, a body that is invariably responsive to his transformed personality. Just put real simply, we're going to be like Jesus. We will be like Jesus. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, said this, He, that is Christ, he will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine a bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God's perfectly, though smaller, but his boundless power and delight and goodness. And Paul says, look, this is going to happen. It's going to transform He's going to conform. And how do you and I know this? How, how can we have this guarantee? Well, he says in the last part of the verse, he's going to do this by the working through which he is able to even subject all things to himself. Who do you know that is more powerful than God? Omnipotence. We love powerful things. Uh, uh, the guys were kind of giving me a hard time because my Prius goes zero to 60 in five minutes, right? Not a very powerful engine there, but we love power. I remember when I was a young boy, I would tell these stories of my dad who I just thought was Paul Bunyan. My mom and my dad, they dropped me off at summer camp one time, and I almost got into a fight with a bunch of boys because I kept saying my dad's bigger and stronger than yours. And I just remember... As we're going back and forth all week, the end of the week comes, and here comes my dad. He gets out of his big truck. He's 6'3", 250, and I'm watching all these other little kids and their dads come out of their cars. And my dad is just standing head and shoulders over everyone else. And all these kids are looking at my dad and saying, whoa, he's so strong, he's so big. 
And I walked away from that camp just thinking, oh, my dad's so big. My dad's 72 years old now, and he's shrunk down. He's still a big guy. But we have a God who is so powerful that never for one moment feels any weakness. The words will never come out of his mouth. I can't do that. Not strong enough. I don't have enough power to do that. You know, as some of you are walking with your parents or grandparents and you hear the doctor say something like, there's nothing we can do anymore. The cancer's taken over. I wish there was more we can do, but we're unable. Those words don't come out of God's mouth. He is able. And just to give you a preview, he raised his son from the dead. And what Paul tells us right here, if he did that for Jesus, your own dead body, when it will be dead one day, God with his power will resurrect it from the dead. And he will give it new life. And he will glorify that body just as Christ's body was glorified. Spurgeon says, there will be no opposition to the resurrection. The trumpet will sound and will bring the dead from the graves and no particle shall disobey that summons. It's because when God says something, it happens. When God says, let there be light, guess what there is? Light. When God says, Come forth, Lazarus. Guess what happens? He comes hopping out. When God says to your body, rise from the dead, you will rise victorious. What a beautiful thought. Paul has said, look, God has exercised this power and authority in saving us, in sanctifying us, and there will be one day where it's all consummated and we will be made just like him. So let me ask you, church, one more time. Are you waiting for some invention that's going to prolong your life and keep you here forever? I hope that's not the case. We love progress and medicine and technological advances, but our hope is in a person, in Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us he is coming back. You are a heavenly citizen your mind, your heart, your affections need to be set on heaven. And I'll tell you this, the more that your mind, your heart, and your affections are set on heaven, the more valuable you'll be for those here on earth. So as we close chapter 3, Paul has given us this beautiful picture of a future hope. Our ultimate prize in the spiritual race is an eternal inheritance, a new glorified body, the opportunity to be with Christ and to see him just as he is. Our reward is eternal. It is immortal. It is a resurrected body. And when you and I live here on earth with that future hope, then it's obvious to the world that we're not putting all of our chips here, that there's something greater than what we see here, but there's the eternal home awaiting all those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. With your uh, head bowed and your eyes closed, I just really feel like I need to ask you, are you truly running after Christ, prizing him? Can someone else look at your life, whether that's your spouse your parents, maybe your children, your coworkers, your friends, will they look at the way that you're running and say, he's running after heaven. He's, he's treasuring the prize. She longs for the day where she could be with Christ. I just don't want any of us to fool ourselves. I don't want any of us to just come on a Sunday and think that we're putting in our spiritual service Oh, Father, would you please prevent that we would be derailed in our focus? God, would you help us to see what it means to be adopted into your family and to be given this privilege of heavenly citizenship, that we have the most glorious kingdom imaginable, and that we are to live 
with the values of the kingdom and with love for our king and with the eagerness to advance the kingdom. Jesus, you are the true Savior. You're the true Lord, the true King. And you have purchased us as your own possession. And just like we learned from Eric last week, you're the one who made us a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And so, Father, would we please, in all faithfulness and integrity, live for another world, not this one that's passing and perishing, but one that is permanent and full of glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.